in God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. Dad had gotten sick uh, several days ago and seemed to be doing better, um, but just yesterday he, uh, he woke up uh, running that fever again and ill, so uh, the Lord led me to this passage. I was thinking certainly we should look at something related to Christmas, what we're celebrating, and I thought about how we could certainly look at the great thing that God has done and the gift of his son and what that has done in this world. But then my heart turned to to you, dear people, and it, the Lord put it upon my heart to look at a passage that would address each of us more personally. It strikes me, especially this year, that here we have the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, the greatest thing that ever could happen. God himself coming down and taking our flesh upon him to become our redeemer. And yet, there will be many that do not benefit from this great gift. There are many for whom it makes no difference that the Son of God came from heaven and was born in that stable. And so that's what I want us to look at in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, the greatest gift that many refuse. Let's begin by reading God's word together. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless our understanding of it. O Lord, you are the one who has given us this word. Not only is it the word of your mouth as you walked on this earth, but you, by your Holy Spirit, 
superintended your servants, the apostles, and blessed that this might be recorded in such a way as to be accurate and faithful and preserved to even this day, over 2,000 years later, we might read it and hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would open our hearts to truly hear and that you would help us to learn to our prophet from his teaching. And we pray that you would, Lord, deliver us from all the sin that blinds our eyes and hardens our hearts. Deliver us from our own prejudice against your truth, which is natural to us in our sin. Deliver us from our own ignorance that blinds our eyes. Lord, nothing keeps us back from the truth and back from growing in you more than our own sinful natures. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and do a great work in each of us and help us. You, O Lord, have opened the eyes of the blind. And we pray that you would continue that gracious work in us. We continue to depend entirely upon you for your hand to lead us and bless us. And so please come and be with us this day as we sit at your feet. Please teach us, Lord, to our prophet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this as at this passage, uh, the question we need to first answer is, um, why was Jesus here teaching in the first place? Uh, it's another way of asking, why was he born in that cattle shed? Why was Jesus born of the Virgin Mary? And of course, God's grace is the answer to that. But the scenario, the, the need that calls for that answer is the great need of man being sin. Sin has broken us. It has broken our relationship with God. When he created Adam and Eve, he created us with free agency, with the ability to choose that we might freely choose to love and obey him. And yet, in that, God gave Adam that instruction. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This will that God had given man, the ability to choose, must only be used to choose to love and obey God. That's why it was given him. That's why he was created in this way. It was to bring great delight to the heart of God, to see uh, this man and woman that he had created exercising their will in obedience and giving themselves freely to him, much as we read Jesus teaching us that it brings joy to God that his disciples bear much fruit. So much so the case that God said, I will not allow you to live if you choose to disobey me, if you choose to rebel against me, if you use this will to reject me, I will not allow you to live in this world that I've made. And so he told him in the day that you make the choice of disobeying me, you would surely die. And this, of course, 
is what happened tragically through the agency, the temptation of the serpent. Adam and Eve fall into sin. They are deceived and manipulated and they stumble and fall into sin, which leads the absolute loss and misery of man under God's curse and ultimately the judgment that must come upon sin because God is a holy and good God. This world belongs to him and he cannot and will not allow anything less than holiness and goodness to exist in his world. And so this calls for the inescapable judgment upon sin. This is the context in which we have the story of redemption. We have the promises of God beginning on that sad day of the fall uh, with the pronouncement of the curse upon the serpent. God said, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so God curses the serpent to defeat. He's not going to win and succeed in his purpose of seeing God's judgment destroy the crown of his creation, the work of his hands, mankind that he had made in his image to walk with him as his children in joy and love and obedience. God's not going to allow the evil one, the serpent, to succeed in his plan. And so in that curse upon the serpent is the promise of hope that there will be a seed of the woman who will come and visit destruction upon the serpent and accomplish a redemption for mankind. His promise is repeated all through the scriptures, just nine chapters later, we come to Abram, the father of those who believe. And we have God appearing to Abram in a context of complete paganism and darkness, calling a man from worshiping idols to come and be his child again. We see the beginnings of God's work in this world, this redemptive purpose beginning to uh, manifest more clearly in this covenant. And so the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You can't appreciate the force of those words without remembering the curse of God that is upon this world and upon all who are in it in our sin. God's curse was put upon the sinners. And yet here is this language that there is going to be blessing, not just confined to one man and his children, but through him, there would be a blessing that would come to all the families of the earth. And so we see this promise being repeated and expanded and more and more light being shown upon it all through the Old Testament. It's repeated again 
in the restatement of the covenant with David. We read of that in Psalm 89, for example. As the psalmist says in verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring or your seed forever and build your throne for all generations. There's just one more of these promises that become the whole story of the Old Testament. That is the story of Israel, that God is choosing, has chosen a people to show his grace to, and that he has promised a great salvation, a great redemption from the curse of sin that would renew us and restore us back in terms of what we have lost. This sinful nature that now is so marred by rebellion against God is so twisted. It, it is inclined to all the wrong things and none of the right things, such that we walk in sin and misery naturally, not in obedience and joy. This is what God's promises were pointing to, a, a redemption, a restoration, a deliverance. And in Isaiah chapter 9, we have both the context and the promise so clearly given in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, you, you can't appreciate the light. You can't thank God enough for it or understand the purpose of it without understanding and appreciating and recognizing the darkness that we all are plunged in in our sin. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This language describing the victory of God's people over all the enemies that seek their destruction. How will this be accomplished in verse 6? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so the promises had been repeated ever since that first dark day in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had fallen into sin. God's redemptive, covenant, faithful promise of a glorious victory to overcome what had been lost through listening to the serpent to restore that and to make it whole again and to bring defeat to his purpose has been repeated and anticipated 
for thousands of years until the Lord on one night when everyone was doing their normal affairs caused the birth of his son to take place there in a cattle shed in Bethlehem. God had kept his promise. The Messiah had come. He hadn't come in the way that many looked for. He hadn't come with great uh, fanfare, (coughs) although the hosts of heaven did appear to the shepherds and declare the glorious birth of God's Son. Uh, All the great, all the noble, all the influential, all those that surely would be in on such happenings, they were left uh, out of such an announcement. But we see that God has kept his promise, the Messiah has come, and that brings us then to our passage. And if we go back to Luke chapter 14, we're going to back up and look at the verses leading up to our text quickly. Uh, In verse 1, One Sabbath, when he went out to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So here here the day has come. God's son has been born. The promises are being fulfilled. The covenant people are... Uh, here and here is God's Son, the Messiah. And what do we see? What is the response? They were watching him carefully. Well, in, in any other context, you might have hoped that that was a good thing. Well, of course they were watching him carefully. He's God's Son. They're watching him to, to hang on every word. They're watching him to see, what is he going to do? Here, God's Son is with us and teaching us and speaking to us and healing our sick. And of course we're going to watch Him carefully. That's not at all what this means. They're watching Him carefully, not out of reverence, not to learn, not because they didn't want to miss a moment of being in the presence of the Son of God. These people, the heirs of the covenant promises, the ones who are the descendants of Abraham, who have been entrusted with all of those promises to cherish and keep, to teach the world even, that there was a grace of God coming to bring redemption. They're watching closely to find fault with what he said and did. That's what they're doing. They're watching him carefully. They're looking to see if they can trap him in some uh, moral transgression. this hostile attitude toward Jesus flowed from how they viewed themselves. We see that in how Jesus answered that in verse 7. Now he told them a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Just pause and think about this. Here's the scene. Jesus, the Son of God, as well as some other people, are invited to a dinner. And they are all competing 
over who should sit in the place of honor. They have no regard for him, no understanding of who he truly is, and far from looking for a Messiah that had been promised that would come and finally be the Savior to deliver them from the great need that they had in their sin, how are they viewing themselves as worthy of that honor? They're not looking for a Savior. They're not anxious to see a Redeemer appear. They are convinced that they are worthy of honor, not judgment. They have fallen prey to viewing themselves as those who are entitled. They were the people that God had chosen, after all. (coughs) And they certainly didn't need to be humiliated and schooled like children about how they could share in the blessing of God's kingdom. Continuing in verse 10, But when you are invited, go sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Uh, Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What was the dishonor that was upon them? Well, they weren't all deferring to the Son of God who was in their midst, insisting, here, you sit in the place of honor. You are the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the center of all the promises of God that we've been waiting for. No, they've passed him over. He's just a Jewish carpenter. He's just someone from Nazareth. Uh, he, he is not one that should be shown honor. And so the hostility toward Jesus, the self-perception that is full of entitlement, thinking that they deserve honor and not thinking that they are in need of anything, is what leads Jesus to share this parable about the kingdom of God. It's an answer to uh, Jesus' teaching about not seeking honor yourself. And in verse 12, he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, living your life in humble service of God, uh, looking for the opportunities to serve others who aren't able to return the favor because you're looking to God to bless and reward you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. As much as to say, Jesus, we don't really need tips on how to receive blessings. We know who we are. And we know that we all stand to enjoy those places of honor Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, we've basically got assigned seats there. 
we're the ones who belong there. Why would we worry about what's going to happen to us at the resurrection of the just? Why would we uh, take such pains in how we live our lives to show honor to those who don't have the capacity to repay us as though we're looking for a way to seek the blessing of God's kingdom. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Again, the words themselves might be taken as, well, of course, that is true. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But we see that in the context, this hostility, this tension between these and Jesus It is a pushback on what Jesus has just been saying, and he in turn responds, not in agreement, but in a correction. And we see in verse 16, but he said to him, so there's something about this that needs a correction, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at The time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Now this is clearly an analogy, an illustration of God himself and the amazing grace and favor that he had shown upon the people of Israel in giving a great banquet and inviting them. Why did he do this? You have to ask yourself, why in this parable, why did this man do this? Why did he give a great banquet and invite people? Well, it's not for any other reason than him showing generosity. Uh, this is undeserved. Thank you. This great banquet represents the kingdom of God, certainly. But even more, this great banquet is the Son of God himself. See, those two things are always tied together in these promises through the Old Testament. Participating in the kingdom of God, being welcomed into the kingdom of God, being restored in right relationship with God and being part of His kingdom always depends upon and comes back to the work that God's own Son must do in these promises of the Messiah who would come. And so this man gave a great banquet, and he invited many. Now, he had sent the invitations out. They already knew that they were invited. They knew, presumably, uh, at least an approximate time, when this banquet was going to be held. They'd been notified in a gracious way. You have been honored with an invitation to this banquet. Please come. This corresponds to the the children of Abraham all through the Old Testament being given these great promises about the kingdom of God. Um, That the Redeemer would come to Zion to save his people from their sins. Those passages, those promises that we read, they were told to look for the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah, the child who would be born and who would be the wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Suffering Servant in Isaiah 53, the Lamb of God, the Righteous King, the Great Prophet of Deuteronomy, the True Priest. This is the invitation that had been sent to them. But the point that Jesus is making, both with respect to uh, the general truth and also these 
specific individuals is that receiving the invitation does not automatically guarantee that you will enjoy the blessing of eating and drinking in the kingdom of God. That's the point of the parable. They, they had received the invitation. These people of Israel had received all the promises, but what it comes down to is when the time comes, what is your response to that invitation? You must go to the banquet. The excuses that these make, and, and in the parable, all, all of these who were invited decline when it comes down to it. They decline the invitation. They don't come to the banquet. And notice what these excuses are. These aren't, you know, this person saying, um, I have a nasty drug habit and I'm not going to come. Or I am locked up in prison and I won't be able to make it. These are illustrations of blessing and prosperity. I've made an investment in a piece of property. I've just expanded my business with these yoke of oxen. I've just married a wife and started a family. The excuses are insulting and <clears throat> disingenuous for two things. First of all, none of these would actually keep you from being able to attend. I mean, if you've bought property, you can go to the banquet and then go see the property. Same with the oxen and the same with your wife. Uh, these are clearly just excuses, not reasons. But also, I want you to notice there is something else about these. These are all uh, a protest, if you will, <coughs> against the great generosity of the man that they lived near. They are not going to humble themselves to accept this invitation when it comes down to it. And these answers that they send back are effectively them conveying we're actually doing quite well ourselves thank you we don't need your offer of provision for tonight this is a, a remarkable term of affairs how how is it that people would have blessings and then be so enamored with those blessings and so comforted by those blessings and provisions that they would decline in this parable the invitation of the of the great man but obviously what it illustrates would be the covenant people of God feeling so comfortable in their situation because of God's previous generosity to them that when his son would come to offer them salvation they would decline that with prejudice <coughs> claiming that they had no such need themselves but thank you for your offer what was the result of this rejection well the master of the house was very angry to have his generosity insulted in this way these people have so little regard for one who is showing them such honor and kindness and we get some sense that this is a, 
a very wealthy man just from the size of the hall that he's trying to fill. I mean, that's not hard for us to do. Wouldn't have to go very far down my street to, uh, there's still room for more. <laughs> His servants are, are going up and down all the streets in a city and everybody's in and they're like, we're sorry, it's not, it looks a little empty in there. We're, we apologize. And he says, well, then leave the city and go out in the countryside and find more people to bring in. This master of the house was very angered to have his generosity insulted. These that he had selected in a, in a mark of such favor and sent them an advance invitation to come to his banquet. Now are all sending these insulting excuses They would live to regret their pride. Notice there at the very end of the passage in Luke uh, 14, verse 24, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. God in heaven had loved Israel and shown her such favor. He had even sent his own son from heaven to suffer among them and eventually die in their place so that they would be welcomed into the glory of the kingdom of God to enjoy the abundant provision of God for eternity. And what was the typical response? Not the universal, but a typical response. Well, we turn to John chapter 1, and we read in verses 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Down in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so there was, sadly, this rejection that is a very natural response, even to such an amazing thing as, as a great man inviting you to a banquet or the God of heaven sending his son to bring redemption to this world, how could it be that there would be a rejection of this gift? We, we have to see in the passage, well, what did become of the banquet? And we see that the, the gracious provision of God, the generosity of God, it's not set to no purpose. It's not left uh, unenjoyed, but rather he sends that servant out again and again until finally the hall was full. And he shows his generosity to those who will be grateful for it. Notice the description of those that are the, the, the B list on this invitation. Um, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the homeless, they're not sending their excuses. Now we're good, appreciate the invitation. They're grateful to come. They see themselves in their need, and, they, and an invitation to that banquet, of course, will come. They understand who they are and what a great blessing that generosity is. 
None of them said, I I would come, but I have so many good things happening in my life, I can't squeeze this in. No, they, they answered the invitation. And God has flung open the gates in his kingdom now, as we read in in Romans chapter 10 and 11, <coughs> the rejection of God's covenant people, by and large, uh, produced what? Well, <clears throat> it led about to the invitation of many more into the kingdom. And we, we have to humbly acknowledge uh, our place. How, how is it that we have come into this kingdom if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's, we're in that B list. We're the crippled, the blind, the lame. Um, if we see ourselves rightly, that's who we are. This is the invitation that God has given again and again and again. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, just for one other example. He calls, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. You see, there is a hunger in this world that in our pride sometimes we deny. But nonetheless, nothing can satisfy that hunger except God himself. This gift of his son alone is that rich feast that we can come to and have the source of all our misery answered in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ with the forgiveness of our sin, the payment of our debt, the change of a transformed life. And so this all brings us then to each of you. What about you this Christmas? <clears throat> Will it matter to you personally that God sent his son to offer forgiveness and deliverance from sin and judgment? You're hearing his invitation today, but will you come? Do you acknowledge how broken and wretched you are? Or do you see yourself as too busy, too prosperous to come when God in heaven invites you? Isaiah 45 verse 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth. God is calling all men everywhere, we read in Acts 17, to repent and come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet so many do not answer that. So many are the the initial list of those who are invited to the banquet. So many, even despite their misery and their sinfulness and their guilt and the undeniable need and brokenness that fills this world are so blinded and hardened by pride and sin that they will not accept the greatest gift that has ever been given. And so, for each of us, we can, we can think about the birth of Jesus Christ and have some sense of wonder and awe about that. But what difference will it make to you? 
Will it make a difference? We're confronted with the same choice. You can either enter into the great hall where there's light and joy and feasting and thank God with the greatest sense of relief and hope and wonder that his son was born to save you one night almost 2,000 years ago. Or you can offend the God of heaven and stir his anger up against you that he would love the world so much that he sent his only begotten son and he watched men try to murder him and lie about him and laugh at him and despise him for years and ultimately offer him up to be killed and he heard him crying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he hardened his heart toward his own son and he crushed him on the cross until he stopped breathing and died. And then he comes and he says, I've repaired what your sin had broken. Come to the feast. Come to my son. Come back to me. And you're going to say, please excuse me. I have friends that I'm busy with. Or I have a social media account that I need to spend some time on. Or I'm making a lot of money right now and don't really need anything from you. Don't let it be so for you. The very best thing that ever happened or ever could happen was God coming to save us from our sin. But it will only mean anything good for you if you accept the gift. If you come to the Son and take Him for yourself as your pearl of great price. And so God says now, today, come, for everything is now ready. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for such an amazing provision, for such amazing love for those who are so unworthy. Lord, many of us have children, and I venture that none of us could have done what you did to your son under any circumstances. And yet you are willing to put him to torment there upon the cross until he died, that there might be a gospel to offer in this world. And so we pray, Lord, that you would keep us all from being so proud, so unjustly proud, to think that we do not need what you are offering us. Lord, sin has broken and ruined what you had made. And if we're honest, we see that all around us. We see the confusion, the hurt, the pain. And it just continues to get worse apart from the intervening grace of God. And so we pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from turning our backs on such a Savior, that we would answer the invitation joyfully, thankfully, that we would come to the feast at your invitation that we would partake of Jesus Christ, acknowledging our own bankruptcy, our own emptiness, and that coming to him, we would find life and blessing and restoration. And we 
would show that total consecration of heart that you call us to in the verses that follow these. Lord, we thank you for giving Jesus Christ, and we thank you for hearing us as we who believe in him pray in his name. Amen.